On Thursday, August 23, 1973, a man armed with a machine gun walks into a bank in Stockholm. He fires around and takes four people hostage. The man demands that his friend, Clark Olofsson, is released from prison. Six days later, the police are able to free the hostages and arrest the man. But during those six days, the hostages became friendly with the robbers. This is later called the Stockholm Syndrome. Hi and welcome to True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Pernilla. You can reach me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com or find me on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. Just search for True Crime Sweden. After a couple of episodes that was really sad with children dying, this one is going to be easier on you. Nobody dies in this episode. Yay! This is the story of how the Stockholm Syndrome came to be a thing. This all started on a sunny day in August of 1973. On Thursday, August 23, 1973, a man walked into Kreditbanken, a bank office in the central parts of Stockholm. He was armed with an automatic rifle, and when he was inside the bank, he took out this rifle from inside his coat. Then he said in English, The party has started and fired into the air. He then points out three women that he wants to keep as hostages, and he brings them upstairs to the vault. The three women are Christine Enmark, who is 23 years old, Elisabeth Olgren, who is 21, and Birgitta Lundblad, who was 31 years old. Christine Enmark later describes that she doesn't remember much of this until she's sitting outside the vault with her hands and feet tied. She is then terrified. When he starts talking about wanting another felon, Clark Olofsson to be brought there, her thoughts are that this is only going to get worse. The bank robber was at this time acting very stressed and he also seemed like he was on something. When the policemen go into the bank with their weapons up, shortly after the hostages had been taken, they are fired upon. One of the policemen are hit in his hand. He is later back that day and kind of proudly showing off his bandaged hand to the media. But let's back up a bit. The robber later tells his story and he says that he got into a cab and he got off near the bank and then went into a public restroom to put on his disguise. 
his plan was to look Arabic. So he put on a lot of dark makeup, a wig, glasses and a mustache. He then went into the bank. He yells out, get down on the floor at the same time as he fires the round up, up into the roof. He then says, the party has started. He picks out three women to be his hostages. The rest of the personnel in the bank is let out. He then makes his demands to the police. He wants the convicted bank robber, Clark Olofsson, to be released and brought to the bank. He wants three million Swedish kroner, that's about 350,000 US dollars. Quite a lot of money back then. He also wants two handguns and an escape car. And when the police later um, tells him that he can have a Volvo, he won't have any of that. He wants this to be a Ford or a BMW. He gives the police two and a half hours to arrange all this. When Clark tells his story, he says that he was called up to the warden to receive a call. On the other end of the line, he could hear someone speak English, and this person said, We have a party here, and I want you to join. The police then cut in and tell Clark that there is a bank robber holding hostages in a bank and that he wants Clark to be brought there. According to Clark, he recognized the robber's voice right away, but according to the other robber, he didn't rec recognize his voice at all, not until they spoke in person in the bank. Their stories differ there. Uh, the robber also says that Clark didn't even recognize him at first when he walked into the bank because of his disguise. But anyway, Clark is taken to a police car to be brought up to the bank. During the ride, he's telling the policeman what a dangerous man this is, that he is addicted to drugs and that he has no limits at all. He doesn't reveal the name of the robber because... You never tell on a friend, but he keeps telling them how bad this guy is. The police then, according to Clark, promise him to get him out of prison or at least uh, have his sentence reduced if he only helps the police out in this situation. He agrees to do this. This is later denied by the police. They say that they never made a deal with him. Just a little something about Clark. He was committed for his first bank robbery when he was only 18 years old and had since been convicted for several more. He was well known by the police. One of the police is in charge, says that it was completely chaos around Norman's toy during that day and the days to come. Norman's toy is the square that is located just outside the bank and on the square it was full activity. Swedish and international media camped out really close to the bank and the police made a headquarter on the bottom floor of the bank building where people came and left at all hours. Policemen that had the day off came down and into this headquarters to grab a beer and a sandwich or something and to talk to the others. And a lot of policemen talked to the media and shared whatever rumor they had heard that day. Everything to get their own 15 minutes of fame. Can you imagine this being today? 
Today, the police have a special media-trained person who deals with the media. And if this would have been today, nobody would have been able to come close to the bank at all. I've even seen film material where people are actually peeking through the windows into the bank, trying to see what's going on. That's crazy. When they finally get Clark Olofsson to the bank, he is walked inside by six police officers. And somehow, he goes over to the robber and the policeman has to leave. No one seems to be sure of what the plan really was here. If they were only supposed to bring him there to talk to the robber, or if they were actually going to leave him there. So here's the scenario right now. The robber has three women held hostage. Christine Enmark, who is 23, Elisabeth Olgren, who is 21, and Birgitta Lundblad, who is 31 years old. But shortly after, Clark Olofsson arrives at the bank, and when everything seems to get calmed down a bit, Clark finds another person inside the bank, hiding behind a pillar. This is Sven Sävström, who is 25 years old and also a bank employee, but now the only male hostage that they have. The police are desperately trying to figure out who the robber is. At first, they think he might be from another country due to him speaking English and looking kind of Arabic when he went in. But when they transported Clark Olofsson to the bank and he talks about how you never tell on a friend, they start to look into the persons close to Clark. The policeman that hand Clark over also says that he heard the robber say something in a dialect, Skonska, that suggests that he's from the southern parts of Sweden. They speak quite differently down in Skåne. That's the furthest down in Sweden you can get. Um, they speak quite differently there than what we do here in Stockholm. When they talk, it sounds a little more like Danish, which isn't so strange due to them being really close to Denmark. And to be honest with you, I sometimes have a hard time understanding somebody that speaks really fast and in the deep Skonsk accent. I guess you can compare it to a person from London who might sometimes have a hard time understanding a person from Ireland or Scotland if they speak really fast. Well, back to the case. After hearing this, they then came to the conclusion that it had to be Clark Olofsson's former bank robber partner, Kai Hansson, who is 21 years old and on the run. He committed a bank robbery together with Clark Olofsson. That is why Clark Olofsson is in prison now, but this Kai Hansson guy got away and somehow now is on the run. This, of course, leaks out to the media, and now everyone knows who this Kai Hansson is. His mom goes on the radio to plead for him to give up. This is what that sounded like. Kai, det är mamma som talar. Du måste ju uppdeta fruktansvärda du håller på med. Tänk, 
på de oskyldiga människorna i banken. Släpp dem fria. Ge upp dig för din egen och för alla andras skull. Den sista vädjan dig, lyd mamma. And to translate this to you, she says, Kai, this is your mother speaking. You have to give up this horrible thing that you are doing. Think about the innocent people in the bank. Let them go. Give up, Kai, for your own and for everybody else's sake. My last appeal to you, obey your mother. That is kind of sweet. And then they fly this Kai Hansson's brother, Don Hansson, up to Stockholm on the night between Thursday and Friday to try to talk his brother into doing the right thing. He is taken into the bank and when he walks upstairs, a shot is fired. He runs down again, but gets talked into trying again by the psychologist Berit. She says that your brother will never ever shoot you. The second time, two shots are fired and he runs downstairs again. This psychologist, Berit, then tries to convince him to try a third time, but he just won't do it. He is terrified at this point. When he gets back to the police headquarters inside the bank, someone yells to him that he wants to talk to you. And when he speaks to the robbers, they say, Your brother Kai isn't here. You can go home. Dan Hanson then turns around and screams to the policeman, You fucking idiots! You have the wrong guy up there! And then he left with his tears running down his cheeks. Can you imagine this being today? Just letting someone in to talk to the bank robber when you haven't verified who the person committing the crime really is. And don't get me started on the psychologist, be at it. Oh my God. Kai Hanson himself then calls the police a couple of days after this. And he's really upset that his name and his pictures are all over the media, not only in Sweden, but in international media as well. He tells the police that he's in Hawaii and he has no part in this at all. But that wasn't so very clever of him. He is wanted for this other bank robbery that he committed with Clark a few years back. So the American police arrests him in Honolulu and he is sent back to Sweden and put in jail. Well, after all this happened, they got a call from a prison in the southern parts of Sweden, saying that it could be the inmate that hadn't come back from his leave. His name is Janne Olsson. The bank robber that actually is Janne Olsson. He got to know Clark Olofsson when they did time together in that same prison that named Janne Olsson. And it's later discovered that about three weeks before this, on August 3rd, somebody who turns out to be Janne Olsson 
tried to help Clark Olofsson escape from prison. The escape attempt uh, was a failure and Janne Olsson wasn't identified then. But when the police made the decision to go against the Swedish government's advice and bring Clark Olofsson to the bank, the police themselves are no longer in charge of the situation. The Swedish Prime Minister, Olof Palme, and the Swedish Minister of Justice, Lennart Geyer, talked to the media about how the police went against their orders and how they could not longer let the police handle this alone. The hostages describe it like this. When Clark arrived, that seemed to calm the whole situation down a bit. Janne Olsson became much calmer with Clark inside the bank. He was now acting more secure and not so irrational, as Janne had been doing earlier. Clark lets a hostage get out of their ties and tell them to go into the vault to be more protected in case the police decides to open fire. This is one of the things he does that makes the hostages trust him more. Christine Enmark later talks about this. She says that he kept reassuring her that he wouldn't let anything bad happen to her, that he would protect her. He was being nicer to her than to the other hostages. He told her that she could sit next to him when they sat down and so on. And the few times that they were able to get some rest, he said that you can lie next to me and I can hold you. And when Christine describes this, she says that she kind of clung on to him, because he seemed sincere when he said that he would make sure that nothing happened to her. The bond between the hostages and the robbers only grows. They all take turns to be on the lookout post uh, and to stand guard, the robbers said that both the younger girls and also Sven were allowed to hold the automatic rifle to protect themselves when they were standing guard. The only person they never trusted was Birgitta, the 31-year-old woman. She was never on their side. And Christine describes this as now when she's thinking back on it, it all seems crazy, but there and then... She was more afraid of the police outside and also the snipers that they could see through the window. So this was the only way to go. They also tell the story about when the hostages had to use the bathroom. The bathroom was located downstairs and they went one at the time. And if they would have wanted, they would have been able to walk right out at this point. But when thinking of the other hostages upstairs, no one did. They instead went back up to the robbers after using the restrooms. The police also talks about this, and that they watched the hostages go downstairs and that they looked a bit scared, but made a thumbs up to the police when they walked back up again. This is so different of how this would be handled today. Inside the bank, the robbers and the hostages had telephones, so they could call and talk to people outside. They contact the radio, and Christine, one of the hostages, are heard talking on the broadcast 
about what she thinks about the Swedish Prime Minister and how badly this has been handled, and that the police should just agree to the robbers' demands. She also says that she's not at all afraid of the robbers, and that she would travel around the world with them if they wanted her to. Christine later called the Swedish Prime Minister directly, and this is what was said on that call. You're first going to hear the call, and when you heard it, I'm going to translate it to you, okay? Here it is. Det är 
So this is what was said on that call. It starts out with, Hi, this is Christine Enmark and I'm being held hostage here at the bank and I want to speak to Olof Palme. The secretary who answered the phone says, The prime minister is sleeping. He is resting. Oh, wait a minute. He will be right here. And then you hear the prime minister. Hello? Yes? And then she goes. This is Christine Enmark, and I'm being held hostage in the bank. You might have heard me on the radio earlier today. I didn't say very nice things about you. But the thing is, I'm actually very disappointed in you. And he answers, oh, why is that? And she says, I've been a member of your party all my life. But now I think you are sitting there playing with our lives. And he goes, oh, why do you think that? And she answers, I completely trust Clark and the rubber. I'm not at all scared and I'm not desperate. They haven't done anything to me. They're being really nice. We are sitting here telling each other stories and playing knots and crosses. A little side note here for you that don't know about this little game. It's a game where you should try to get five knots or five crosses in a row on a squared paper. That's 70s kind of fun, I guess. Well, back to the call. She continues. Do you know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid that the police are going to do something against us. If they run here and start shooting, we're all going to die. And he answers, Oh, yes, but the police are not going to do that. And she says, But can't you just let me, Elizabeth, and Clark, and Robert, give them the foreign money and two guns, and then we can drive off, because that's what I want. And he says, But that's totally... Why doesn't he let you go then? And she says, He puts it like this. He has nothing to lose, right? And he answers, Couldn't you instead tell them to let you go? And she answers, But they won't do that. You have to understand this. I'm not afraid of him. Not the slightest. I trust these two guys. But okay, they might bring us along and then shoot us. But if they don't, sooner or later the police are going to come in here and they are going to shoot us. It doesn't matter who kills me. And he answers, but why would the police come running in and shoot you? And she says, because we cannot sit here forever and he's not giving up, you know. And he says, but the Swedish people wants us to just go in and shoot them, but we are not going to use violence. This, what's his name, Clark, or whatever his name is, he is sentenced to six years in prison, damn it. And she answers, yes, but he is here as a negotiator for the police. And he says, we cannot let him go. And she says, 
the robber's plan is for Clark to drive the getaway car. And he says, we are not going to let you guys go out on the roads. And she says, but please, I want to be out on the roads. Don't you understand how we feel? There's a pressure from everyone. Then they talk a little more. And then she ends the call with this. But now I'm going to tell you this. I'm getting quite angry and sad here. Now you fix this. You are going to call Norman's toy and tell them that it's done. That they should let the robbers leave with two girls and they should also get 1.5 million kroner in foreign bills and two guns. Either you do this or you come here yourself and trade yourself against the hostages. Goodbye and thanks for your help. And then she hangs up. According to Christine Enmark, Olaf Palme asked her, Wouldn't it be a good thing to die on your post? But this is nowhere to be found on the tapes. But there is some talk about that someone got this off the tapes just to save his face. She says in a later interview that of course he had had it taken out of the tapes. It would have destroyed him and his political career. Who is he to say that to a 23-year-old girl who works in a bank? What kind of post is a bank? It's not like I'm a soldier or anything. I don't know if you know uh, about Olof Palme. He was the Swedish prime minister at this time. And he was uh, shot on February 28th, 1986, when he was walking home from a movie theater with his wife. The assassination of him has never been solved. On the second day of this, on Friday, August 24th, the robber, Janne Olsson, warns the police that he is planning to do something between 7 and 8 p.m. that night. And when the evening arrives, the policemen and everyone around the bank can hear a bomb go off, or at least some explosives. This turns out to be the robber who tried to get into the cash registers by using explosives. And how much cash they actually found are never established. Clark Olofsson says later in interviews that he managed to get out about 250,000 kroner. That's about 30,000 US dollars. But he refuses to say how he got them out. There are claims that he put some of the money in small plastic containers and used his own cavities to smuggle it out. But there is also said that he might have put money into different envelopes, writing addresses on them and just put them in the snail mail outboxes down at the bank office. Another thing that is a possibility is that they, before the robbery, rented a deposit box and just put the money in there to be able to claim it later. Nobody know what really happened except for the two robbers. After about three days, the robber Janne Olsson takes the hostage Sven Sävström aside and tells him that he might have to shoot one of, it, one of the hostages. And if the scenario would have to take place, Sven was the one he was going to shoot. 
This is, of course, very hard for Sven to hear. But they agreed that it would be best if he shot him in the leg. And when Sven hesitates, Christine tries to convince him by saying, It's only a leg, Sven. When she talks about this years later, she is so ashamed that she said that. But right there and then, it felt like it was the only way to go. It was them against the world. Sven also describes another time when he was in charge of the automatic rifle. When the robber Janne Olsson actually put the rifle against his own stomach and told Sven that he could pull the trigger if he wanted. Sven's finger was on the trigger, but he never fired. The robbers and the hostages mostly stay inside the vault, so that the snipers cannot see them. And in the early morning hours on Saturday, August 25th, a policeman sneaks into the bank, tiptoes upstairs and shuts the door to the vault. Now the robbers and the hostages are locked inside the vault. After this, the police install microphones in the ventilation system so that they can hear everything that is going on inside the vault. They still have a phone inside the vault, but the police cuts it off from the outside world, and it's now only possible to receive calls on that phone, not to call out from it. The night after this, the night between Saturday, August 25th, and Sunday, August 26th, the police start drilling holes in the roof of the vault. This makes the robbers believe that the police are planning to put some poisonous gas into the vault. The police also send down a camera through one of the holes. The picture taken shows how the robbers have put ropes around the hostages' necks, so that if the police tried to sedate them with some type of gas, they would be strangled when they became unconscious. Clark Olofsson later explains that they never meant to hang anyone. This was only done so that the police would not use any kind of gas. The police kept drilling more holes. The holes were about 8 inches in diameter, and when the drill went through, the concrete cylinder fell down on the floor. And at one time, the robbers made the hostages lie right beneath where the police were dr drilling. And if they would have stayed there, the concrete cylinder would have hit them right in the head. But the robbers say that they moved them before they have drilled all the way through. But this must have been terrifying on the hostages. And another time when the police were drilling... The robbers adapted explosives to the roof, and when it went off, the drill and everything came tumbling down. The robber then heard someone say, Oh no, that was the best drill I had. And they thought this was really funny. And there's also audio tape from this, and the hostages can be heard screaming, Stop drilling, stop drilling. With the large holes in the roof, the hostages and the robbers could now get food and water. But the robber, Janne Olsson, was so sure that the police were going to use gas 
So he stood beneath the hose with his automatic rifle ready to fire if he heard noises upstairs. In the early morning hours on Tuesday, he fired a shot up through one of the holes. This shot barely missed a policeman, a police technician that was working upstairs. But after about another hour, he fired again, and this time he hit a police technician in his hand and in the side of his face. He survived this. The police realized that they had to act really soon. This couldn't continue any longer. And even though they knew about the ropes that might strangle the hostages, they decided to use gas. After planning this all day, and also aware of that the robbers had a radio inside and could hear the news broadcasts, they decided to act shortly after the 9 p.m. news that night. This way the robbers wouldn't be notified that there were ambulances and something happening outside. So on Tuesday, August 28th at 9.05 p.m., the police attacks by spraying gas through the drilled holes. They can all be heard screaming from inside the vault. We give up, we give up. Even the hostages were yelling that they gave up. The police then go into the bank. The police are all wearing gas masks a la the 70s. They look like aliens. The police yell through the door that the hostages should walk out first. But the robbers convince the hostages that they should leave first and the hostages after them. The two robbers think that if the police take away the hostages, that they might shoot them in there, where there are no witnesses except for the police. So the two robbers go out first, and everything goes down calm and easy and without incidents. One of the policemen yells when he walks outside, Nobody's hurt! Nobody's hurt! And the assembled media and people outside start to clap their hands when the hostages are brought out. Like this is some kind of theater that just ended. So weird. The hostages are taken away by ambulances, and when the two robbers are walked out, they're walked about a hundred yards across the square, really like a walk of shame. The square was full of people. This was like a live movie to most of them. People actually took days off from work just to hang out and see what happened around this square. When the hostages had been released after six days in captivity, Christine and the other hostages doesn't tell the police that Clark also handled the automatic rifle. She says that she did this because she wanted to protect him. In her own words, she says, he was an important person to me in there, and the false sense of secure that I felt around him meant more to me than getting him convicted. And the night after this all ended, Clark Olofsson's girlfriend, Inga Lil, gave birth to their first child.
But let's talk a little more about Christine Enmark, one of the hostages. About a year after this, Clark Olofsson writes to Christine from prison. They then start writing each other back and forth. She says that she had thought of him quite a lot after this all happened, and she was happy to receive that first letter. The first letters were kind of casual, uh, but with time they started to express their feelings for each other, and they also met to sleep together a few times when he was on leave from the prison. A side note here, when you are in prison in Sweden, uh, you do get to leave for like 24 hours or a weekend or maybe just for a few hours sometimes. If you get to go on a leave, it's under certain conditions, depending on the crime you committed, the time you're going to serve, how you behave in prison, and so on. And there are different kinds of leaves. You can either have two guards with you in full uniform, or you can have two guards uh, with you that are in their plain clothes, or you can go by yourself and just have to report back to prison on a certain time. This all depends on what the prison decides is appropriate for you. Well, back to the story. So Christine actually met and slept with Clark Olofsson after he had held her hostage for six days inside a bank. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around this. But I think she puts more blame on the other robber, Janne Olsson, because he was the one who started this. Clark Olofsson was only brought there because Janne Olsson demanded that he should come. And Clark was being nice to her all through this, and maybe that's why it turned out the way it did. Christine Enmark later says that a few years after she had slept with Clark, she really wanted to have a child. They were not really in contact at this point, but she wasn't seeing anyone and she so badly wanted to become a mother. So she actually asked Clark if he would agree to become the father of her child. And he said yes. And she did get pregnant. But she lost the child due to miscarriage. But can you imagine the headlines that would have made? Bank robber and hostage had a baby together. Oh my. Christine later goes on to work as a psychotherapist. When this goes to trial, there is no question that Janne Olsson is guilty. But there is another thing with Clark Olofsson. He was brought into this by the police. He didn't ask to go himself. Should he be convicted for this robbery? In the trial, Janne Olsson is convicted to life in prison for this. And Clark is also convicted. But when he appeals, they change their minds and they now say that he didn't have any guilt in this. He still has time to serve for an earlier robbery, so he still remains in prison. And I'm now going to talk a little about how this case came to be the start of what is now described as the Stockholm Syndrome. A psychology professor describes it like this. 
The Stockholm Syndrome is a description of what happens to a person who doesn't have any power over a situation and also feels a dependence towards another person. The balance of power is very uneven. And when the only view on things are the view and the perspective of the power person, in this case the robber, his views with time becomes your view. The reason the hostages became so attached to the robbers seemed to be that a person tries to cling on to another person you feel are the safest one in a horrifying and distressful situation. And sometimes this person actually is the perpetrator. But Christine herself does not want to call this a syndrome at all. She says, and this is in recent years, that a person that has a syndrome is to her a person that is not capable of making their own decisions. A person with a syndrome is so affected by the syndrome that they aren't aware of what they're doing, and it's easy to dismiss such a person. She instead wants to see it as this. She did what she did because it was a good strategy for survival. She didn't think of it in this way when it happened, but it makes sense to her later. She did what she did and acted the way she acted to survive. She also says that her thought at the time was that if Janne Olsson, you know, the original robber, if he liked her, it would probably stop him from harming her. But when you hear all this, it might seem like this was nothing to Christine and the others. But I've seen recent interviews with at least Christine, and she still has nightmares about this robbery. This was awful to her, and it still affects her, even though more than 40 years has passed. She was so scared of Janne Olsson, and somehow Clark Olofsson became her safety person in all this. I think it's worth to remember, she was only 23 at the time. And maybe you wonder what happened to Janne Olsson and to Clark Olofsson. Janne Olsson served 10 years and 6 months out of his life sentence and was let out on good behavior. He has not been convicted of anything after that. He moved to Thailand and he's still living there. And when it comes to Clark Olofsson, he didn't learn anything of this, it seems. He has been in prison several times and he also changed his citizenship from being a resident of Sweden. Uh, he then became a resident of Belgium. Uh, he did this sometimes during the 90s. And he also changed his name from Clark Olofsson to Daniel de Munich. De Munich. I don't know really how to pronounce that. His last sentence was for selling drugs and he was convicted in 2008 to nine years in prison here in Sweden. But last year he was transferred to serve out his sentence in Belgium and he is not allowed to go to Sweden ever again. I'm so sorry to the people of Belgium for dumping this guy on you. 
That's all about the case that brought us the Stockholm Syndrome. Thank you for listening. And now over to this week's little fun fact about Sweden. In Sweden, we drink a lot of coffee, but we don't call it to have a coffee. We call it fika. And it's so much more than just coffee. It's a way of life. It's a way to stay connected to your friends or to find out the latest gossip at your workplace. You do that over a fika. You invite people over for a fika. We have fika breaks at work. Old people always have a 3 p.m. fika. It doesn't matter if you feel like fika or not at 3 p.m. You fika at 3 p.m., damn it. A fika consists of coffee and maybe something sweet to go with it. And last but not least, a great conversation. There's actually a chain of coffee shops in New York that is called Fika. The company was started by Swedes. Check them out at fikanyc.com. fikanyc.com. And if you feel like checking out another thing about Fika, some Swedish guys made a song called Swedish Fika. It's now on YouTube and it has over 3 million views. It's kind of funny. Just search for Swedish Fika. Fika is spelled F-I-K-A. Search for that on YouTube and you'll find it. If you want to reach me, you can do so by emailing me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com or find me on Twitter, Facebook or on Instagram. Just search for True Crime Sweden. I wish you all a Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays if you celebrate in another way. See you next time. Goodbye. Hej då.